This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. Having a loved one in intensive care at a hospital is an experience many of us have gone through, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic. It's an extremely stressful time with the strain of a relative being ill, the decisions you may have to take and the costs you have to tackle. What should ICU care look like in India? The Union Health Ministry recently released a list of guidelines that list out the criteria for ICU admissions and discharges, the role of intensivists or critical care specialists in the ICU, and the patient as well as the family's right to refuse admission among a host of other things. What do these guidelines say? How do doctors usually deal with consent in ICU settings? What happens if there is a difference of opinion between patients and doctors when it comes to ICU care? We delve into these guidelines and into how ICUs function with Dr. Ram E. Rajagopalan, past president Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine and the head of intensive care at Sri Ramachandra Medical Center in Chennai. Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast Dr. Ram Rajagopalan. Yeah, hi. Doctor, could you explain to us what the new ICU guidelines say about admitting and discharging patients to intensive care? Okay, uh, these guidelines are not necessarily anything new to us who are practicing uh, intensive care for a long time. These guidelines have been what we may consider uh, standard operating procedures in most ICUs for a very long period. The only reason that it is becoming more uh, visible right now is because the government asked uh, some ICU experts about what these uh, recommendations should be. So the ICU uh, experts involved went through a process of uh, interviewing a large number of other intensivists and tried to come to a consensus kind of a statement. And that is what is being presented here as this guideline. Okay, So broadly, when you look at it, the admission criteria are reasonably logical. Any patient with serious illness that causes either a change in their neurological function, that is coma or, or even alterations in their brain function, blood pressure and cardiac problems, breathing and oxygenation issues, obviously need to be watched literally closely in the ICU. And these are the case, cases that are uh, recommended for admission to the ICU. Besides uh, patients who uh, decompensate while in the hospital, during operations, or uh, any kind of sudden deteriorations in their overall status are patients who have shifted to the ICU. Uh, discharge, again, is reasonably logical in the sense that anybody in whom these conditions have resolved are probably logically patients who can be discharged from the ICU. But here, there are a couple of other uh, factors that come in that occasionally a patient may seek discharge even while they are being treated in the ICU, and that is given an additional consideration as is the physician's judgment about whether the patient is continuing to show an improvement or is not uh, you know, uh, requiring ongoing intensive care. And this is a, a subjective kind of a judgment that they make. And the decision to discharge is clearly based on this kind of a parameter. Thank you, doctor. Do you feel that there was a need for such guidelines? You say that these are standard operating procedures that a lot of ICUs in the hospital already across the country already follow. But is this that has this so sort of gained importance post the COVID nineteen pandemic or post a lot of health crises that we have seen in which like you know patients wonder who or who will not 
go in or not go into the ICU. I, I would have a feeling it's not specifically the COVID pandemic that made it uh, more necessary for them to publish these kind of guidelines. I think either the government had a specific case in mind or wanted to you know, uh, publish a reasonable standard of care um, uh, gu- guideline for the general public. And that is probably the reason that it was asked for. In fact, when I asked the individuals who are responsible for developing this guideline, they were not very clear. They just said that the government wanted us to give a, give a set of guidelines. So they went through a consensus process. They didn't give one person's uh, opinion. No? They went through a formal consensus process. And this is the way in which they developed the guidelines. Right. Now, the guidelines stipulate, doctor, that a critically ill patient cannot be admitted to the ICU without their consent or the family's consent. How does the issue of consent uh, usually play out in a hospital ICU setting? I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding when you say that the patient cannot be admitted without their consent. Very typically, when a patient comes to the hospital and is seriously ill, there is what we will call an implied consent. That is, that the patient is sick enough to warrant admission to an intensive care unit. And under those conditions, we generally will make an approach to the patient himself or to the family if the patient can't make a a clear-cut decision. And and that will be to uh, give them a choice of informed refusal. So if a patient understands that there is a problem with him and needs intensive care and thus decides that he doesn't want to get admitted, he has the right to do so. In fact, uh, under the IPC, uh, if you admitted a patient to the ICU against their will, it would be considered battery. And under those conditions, you are uh, terminally uh, liable. This issue becomes easy when the patient is conscious and is able to make such a decision. But it becomes far more contentious if there is an incompetent patient. Here again, we traditionally believe that the family should be a reasonable surrogate for making these decisions. But occasionally, you probably will see some kind of conflict even with the family. And under those conditions, we try to get some kind of a consensus with not one family member with multiple family members. And we recognize that sometimes this process can delay the admission of the patient into the ICU. And as a consequence, if you really look at the guideline, it is quite clear that there is a certain set of minimum standards for supporting and uh, monitoring such a patient uh, when there is a prolonged uh, duration when the patient cannot be admitted to the ICU. So in general, the issue of consent is always necessary for the admission of a patient. And uh, if the patient in, uh, who knows what the consequences of the uh, um, uh, admission are decides not to get admitted to the ICU, they have the right to, uh, to do what they prefer. And that makes it quite clear. Thank you, doctor. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what the guidelines state that when there is no further treatment possible or if the continuation of treatment is not going to make an impact on the patient, then keeping them in the ICU is considered futile care. What is the situation at present in such cases? Can one specialist take such a call? Could it potentially lead to poorer patients not getting access to ICU care in limited resource settings? Okay, along these lines also, I'll I'll be a little careful in using that word futile. If you really look at the guidelines very carefully, there is no mention of the word futile at all because futility is some kind of a value judgment. Uh, Most physicians wouldn't use it because it seems to imply a certain degree of certainty or near certainty in our decision making. Much of what we do in the ICU is judge what is going on with the patient's progression 
and a individual who is not seeming to improve despite maximum therapy we make a judgment that this patient is unlikely to demonstrate a response and we make a, a suggestion that such a patient uh, continuing therapy is going to be very expensive with no visible uh, end point or a benefit that you're going to be seeing so under these conditions it is classically a medical decision that judges whether a patient is responding appropriately or not and it is not the family that needs to be uh, uh, you know involved in this decision making but there is always a concern whether an individual physician is a good person to make such a decision because as you said a premature uh, shifting of the patient can occur as a consequence and traditionally we feel that is where the role of the critical care specialist generally lies he has the ability to judge progression in multiple kind of uh, areas as far as the patient is concerned and can make a reasonable judgment by themselves but more often than not we will also seek the advice of other specialists who are taking care of the patient before a patient is transferred uh, even under these conditions if the family feels that there is a need for a second opinion they are always completely acceptable for them to uh, get the alternate uh, opinion i can clearly understand where your concerns will be that if the judgment of a patient's needing uh, intensive care is uh, squarely on the physician whether you can go down the slippery slope where you know uh, a doctor can assume a very paternalistic kind of an ideal and decide that certain individuals classically poorer individuals need not get the continuing care and here is where the guideline recommendation is also very clear and suggests that such decisions should not be based on economic constraints so it's trying to minimize this kind of uh, tendency for us to give uh, poorer patients less care and i think in in general uh, this guideline sort of gives you a, a greater amount of strength in making these kinds of uh, independent decisions tell me a little bit about the opposite scenario if if the patient's family feels that they are not getting better but that the doctors want to continue keeping a patient in icu how does that how does that play out again if the family feels that the patient is not getting better and uh, you know the question is do they feel that this patient should be shifted out of the intensive care unit in which case they are making a an independent decision really they are utilizing their autonomy in terms of making a decision and they feel if, if a patient is not going to get any better what is the value of continuing such therapy and if the physician also agrees that this is genuinely the, the situation allowing the patient to be shifted out of the icu is not totally inappropriate if there is a conflict between the physician's opinion and the patient's opinion obviously this needs to be uh, you know discussed and the explanations need to be given before such a decision is made never is the decision made unilaterally it is usually made in conjunction with the uh, family so that they understand the consequences of any of these processes whether it is initiated by the family or whether it's initiated by the physician i think uh, both sides have to understand uh, that uh, what the consequences are and only when such an understanding occurs can the transfer be made this has happened a lot in general doctor uh, either way the patient not getting better and the physician deciding that they the icu care cannot give them anything more or the family for various reasons mostly economic in our country because a lot of patients in our country are not very well off they don't want to continue to pay icu charges so does this happen a lot not a lot but frequently enough that we need to make uh, a careful decision about this 
Okay, and here again, we clearly need to understand the autonomy of the patient. Okay, uh, one, the uh, the uh, if the patient and the family feel clearly for whatever reasons they know the value of the intensive care unit and would still require or request a transfer out of the intensive care unit, I think that has to be respected to a great extent. As long as uh, I mean, we can never be sure about what the ulterior motives of an individual's decisions are. But if that is a clear-cut decision made, either by the competent patient or by an appropriate surrogate, I think we will have to respect it. From the physician's point of view, as we said, if a physician decides that the patient is not getting any better and the family has a conflict about accepting that, we usually will go with the consensus opinion. We'll ask other physicians involved in the care to see whether they agree with that. Or we'll also offer the patient's family a second opinion chance. So we give them the data so that they can take to an independent physician who can make a judgment of whether the patient needs the continuing care or not. So I think we can, to a great extent, minimize any kind of a conflict if we have communications um, between the families and the, and the doctors who are taking charge. Does this mean that physicians often have to play this balancing role between, say, balancing the fact that the family's economic situation might not be great versus the patient? either getting better or not getting better in ICU care. Yes, that is a, it is the most difficult thing that we need to do. And it is a constant thing that we, we constantly, I mean, we keep debating about which is the appropriate kind of an option. Very often we will see individuals who have marginal affordability, where we think another day or two of supportive care will make a big difference. And we'll try to, you know, convince the family about such an option. And you know, sometimes families will get convinced. At other times, they will ask for a potential transfer. We will always try to see if, if there is such a situation where the patient is likely to show an improvement over a period of time and the affordability is limiting their care, whether we can transfer them to other places of affordable care. So, for instance, in my own institution, I have both a private side and a public side. The cost of care in the, in the public side is generally much lower. And if a patient in the private side feels that they can't continue to afford it, we try to move them to an area where there can be lower costs, or we can even offer them options of moving to a government hospital with appropriate support during the entire process. So we do give people choices. It's not like we compel a patient to accept one end or the other. But cost is definitely a very strong concern in many of these decisions. Tell us a little bit more about the critical care specialist role. You were telling us earlier how uh, the physician's decision, uh, sometimes the families argue about it, and so then you would consult a broader uh, spectrum of doctors. What what do the guidelines state about who needs to be in charge of the interview, uh, in the ICU, sorry, the role of intensivists and critical care specialists? Okay, let me put this in the right historical perspective. Okay, I started practice 30 years ago, 33 years ago, literally. And when I came back from the U.S., I was a trained intensivist. I had a specialization in intensive care. There was no other intensivist, a trained intensivist at that time, in, in for, for that matter, in Chennai and probably in India. Most people who were there at that point in time were people who have worked in ICUs and had a sort of a, not a formal training, but a on-the-job kind of a, a approach to uh, critical care in general. But from that point onwards, there has been a lot of developments. At that point, there was no recognition even by the Medical Council of this speciality. But from that point onwards, uh, through the activities of the Indian Society of Critical Care Medicine, through the national boards, 
both of which I was involved with in developing curricula and uh, through uh, many, many uh, universities right now, there is specialization that is available in critical care. The recommendations that are currently being given is if you have the opportunity, an individual should be trained in one of these formal programs. But it also recognizes that not everybody is likely to be trained and it gives an option for people who have not had formal training if they had sufficient exposure to critically ill patients that they can also be defined as what you call as a critical care specialist or an intensivist. But probably what is most relevant in this entire set of guidelines is at no point does the government state or the guideline state that you have to have such qualifications to run an intensive care unit or to manage a patient in an intensive care unit. It is not at all stated that way. But I think with the increasing popularity of specialization, currently virtually every tier one and tier two city in the state and probably in most states have access to intensive care specialists. It's probably in smaller rural places where they don't have access. And there again, there is an option for telemedicine as a method of providing this kind of support. The role of the intensivist very, very clearly is to serve as a coordinator of, you know, of care in multiple areas and to provide their own uh, expertise in terms of the acute support of these kinds of patients. I think uh, I, I remember a long time ago, Dr. Hegde from Mangalore effectively had defined uh, intensive care as the only quote-unquote specialty which was still a general kind of uh, generalized uh, kind of approach to medicine. He didn't even call it a specialty. He wouldn't call it a specialty. He'd say that you are generalists who are taking care of seriously ill patients. And that is effectively what a critical care specialist is. We are people who can take care of virtually uh, every other organ at the same time to provide the patient with an appropriate level of support. And we'll be the best kind of individuals to coordinate the overall care of the patient while they're in the, in the ICU. Uh, this is clearly developing. And uh, currently, the government is not compelling specific training for an intensivist for them to be running an intensive care unit. You talked about telemedicine to be there in order to for uh, smaller hospitals and maybe tier two or tier three towns to be able to consult. Is this how it generally plays out? A doctor in the smaller towns do? Is it possibly the ICUs run by like an experienced person rather than someone with an actual, uh, you know, uh, specialty? Very typically in a very small town, uh, it is usually the anesthetist or the general physician who will take care of the patient initially. But all of them also recognize their limitations, that if there is an option to stabilize a patient and to mobilize them to a higher level of care, it will always be done. Uh, and uh, I've seen that very often uh, where patients are moved to Erode or Coimbatore from neighboring small towns on a regular kind of a basis. But in the situation where this is not possible, there is an option for telemedicine in certain ways. But this is, again, very new and uh, probably relatively sparse in terms of its availability. But there is definitely an option where an individual who is directly taking care of the patient can seek additional advice for them to, to provide additional support for the patients. This is, again, please understand, this is still a rarity, uh, but this is definitely an op opportunity for uh, for the growth of the specialty in those kinds of areas. Do you think this is a, this is a field that needs to grow in India, the, the training of, uh, of specialists for critical care uh, situations, as well as the whole telemedicine concept? 
Yes, I think so. I uh, I feel very strongly. Like I said, if I started being the only trained intensivist about 30 years ago, and currently we have societies which have more than 20,000 members, all of who are uh, to some extent either formally trained or to a great extent being exposed to intensive care, there is a very strong need for such a specialization. Uh, and I think uh, there is a, you know, I think, as you said, the COVID uh, pandemic is one that brought us very clearly to the forefront. Till that point in time, nobody even understood what the value of an intensive care unit was. The fact that we could provide uh, good support for patients who were that seriously ill was something that really brought, brought out uh, the importance of this kind of specialty. You mentioned generally that anesthetists or general physicians would in smaller places be manning an ICU. Is there scope for doctors of other specialties also to be included into this work? Yeah, of course, uh, as long as they can be appropriately trained. There is no base specialty uh, that you need to be very specifically in. Uh, the other specialties which you typically look at are people who work in pulmonary medicine. Uh, and again, pediatrics is for um, pediatric critical care is going to be a baseline specialty. Uh, actually, there are very rare um, surgeons who can do the same the same uh, specialization. But virtually anybody in any specialty, if they decide that they want to get extra training in the critical management of the patient, I had a colleague who was a neurologist who, who became a neuro intensivist. Okay, so all these options are definitely available. Uh, but that requires an additional period of training where the ability to manage patients who are seriously deteriorating with appropriate support and appropriate monitoring uh, is going to be, I mean, needed. There's going to be a need for such specific training. Last question, Doctor, just broadening this discussion out a little bit. Let's talk about how the healthcare system and doctors in general have been perceived of late. The, one of the growing problems in our country is of violence towards doctors and healthcare professionals and a mistrust of the healthcare industry as a whole. How important uh, is better communication, especially when it comes to critical cases, when your loved one is seriously ill and may not make it, that's when the patient's family feels that they are the most vulnerable. How important is it for critical care specialists to be able to communicate with patients' families really well, especially when we talk about the context of, you know, uh, monetary situations, economic hardships, etc.? No, let me just give you my perspective on this perceived increasing issue related to violence. I'm not very sure whether it's a real problem or a perceived problem. Very clearly, it could be a function of increased reporting or access to reports that is generally more available now that makes it seem a very common kind of an issue. Or whether it is just a steady state of violence that is occurring uh, in a growing healthcare industry, which is really definitely exponentiating at the current rate. Okay, so we are probably seeing a larger industry, and as a consequence, you're probably seeing a lot more in terms of the report. My personal experience, at least as far as mistrust is concerned, has not been in a negative kind of a direction. Over the last 30 years, I don't see any perceivable change in negative attitudes towards care. And maybe it is also a function of the way in which we communicate with individuals. Clearly, the cost to affordability kind of mismatch is definitely the primary reason why there is an increasing amount of mistrust. And if these are you know, appropriately handled, preferably by a reasonably mature physician, 
a lot of this mistrust can be minimized. Okay, and additionally, in the acute care area, particularly in the critical care area, the problems of uh, the cost to affordability can really be exaggerated. The cost of care in the intensive care units are extremely high, and the consequences on some of these patients are extremely poor. So that mismatch is very apparent, and the tendency for violence is much greater over there. This is particularly exaggerated when the first person who communicates a negative outcome, say to a family that has spent a large amount of money, is usually a junior doctor. And uh, traditionally, their ability to communicate is going to be not only uh, limited by their by their experience, but also is going to be misjudged. Basically, if an older man like me comes out and says something to a patient, the tendency to believe me is going to be greater than with a younger physician who comes out. And clearly that that mistrust is going to be there. And one of the ways in which I think a lot of this can be minimized is particularly in private uh, medical settings, where the junior doctor is usually the the front of uh, the the care uh, to the given patient. If a senior physician can take the brunt of the, uh, the problem and is able to handle these patients better and communicate much better with the families, you may be able to minimize this kind of a distrust. Personally, I think a lot of the distrust probably comes from that huge amount of cost that has come in with modern uh, medical care. And this is very apparent in the intensive care units. Talk to us a little bit more about communication. Is this something that really needs to be focused on from the MBBS stage itself? Oh, absolutely. I think in the MBBS stage, there's hardly any uh, you know importance placed on communication. I don't know whether it is growing or in certain uh, colleges, whether they give a greater attention. But you know, teaching a, a medical graduate about communication is only one part of the process. The rest of it is a question of regular practice of this kind of a process and the ability to, you know, to develop skills uh, is very much a function of time. And uh, I, I personally believe that teaching communication skills is worthwhile. Uh, say we do include it, say, for instance, in the critical care curricula on a regular basis. And in fact, during our examinations, we test people on, on communication skills. So we, we try to do this as much as we can. Uh, but we still need to understand that very often uh, the majority of individuals who will be dealing with a seriously ill patient acutely deteriorating are young individuals who are not that they are callous or not that they are uh, incapable, but probably their ability to communicate this uh, uh, to the patient is limited and can be completely misperceived by the families. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Doctor. Thank you very much. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.